This is episode 195 of the Stem Cell Podcast, the Global Alliance for IPSC Therapies with Dr. Stephen Sullivan. Hey, everybody. We are Dr. Daylon James and Dr. Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. As you know, the ISSCR 2021 annual meeting is taking place from June 21st to the 26th. And as always, we have big plans to bring you the latest research being presented at the meeting. Throughout the week, we will be releasing daily episodes discussing some of the meeting's highlights and chatting with special guests, including doctors Chuck Murray, our friend, our other friend, Dr. Madeline Lancaster, and other friends. What's more, we will be releasing these episodes not only in their traditional audio format, but also as video episodes, which you can find on the Stem Cell Podcast website or Stem Cell Technologies YouTube channel. So stay tuned for that. I'm going to have to get a haircut and shave. Today, we have Dr. Stephen Sullivan from the Global Alliance for IPSC Therapies. He's on the podcast to talk about how the initiative supports the implementation and clinical application of therapies derived from pluripotent stem cells. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming right up. But first, we'd like to remind our listeners about ESC and IPSC News, which, if you haven't heard by now, is a free weekly newsletter brought to you by Stem Cell Science News, summarizing all of the latest research, news, jobs, and events in the ESC and IPSC fields. So save time and keep current with ESC and IPSC News. You can subscribe for free at www.escellnews.com. We're going to talk about a cell stem cell paper for the first paper of the the roundup here, and it's actually coming from a PI who we've covered previously and is one of our favorite names to say in science, Dr. Pantelimon Rompolas from the Perelman School of Medicine at UPenn, first author of Sisha Huang. Title of this paper is LGR6 marks epidermal stem cells with a nerve-dependent role in wound re-epithelialization. We're talking about LGR6, not LGR5, which is that famous marker of intestinal stem cells, if I understand that correctly. So we know that stem cells, of course, support the maintenance of a bunch of different organs, skin in addition in included. But we got to talk about injury and how injury is inducing stem cell differentiation, stem cell function to actually restore lost cells. And again, we're talking about the, the skin. And these folks have shown that LGR6 is marking a regionally restricted population of the epidermal stem cells that are actually... The neat part of this is these stem cells are interacting with nerves, and it's this interplay between the nerves and the skin stem cells that actually are is contributing to wound healing and re-epithelialization. What they did is they actually used some diphtheria toxin to ablate the LGR6 population and found that when they did that, it delayed wound healing, um, as you might expect. And the other, the nifty thing is when they denervated the skin, removed the nerves, it also phenocopied that effect. So they used a lot of really neat uh, intravital imaging as well to figure out how these stem cells actually move around and repair the skin after injury and, and how losing the nerves can actually kind of delay that process. And that LGR6 is, these LGR6 positive stem cells are really critical 
to the reepithelialization, and it's um, uh, again this uh, loss of the nerve populations in the skin is also going to phenocopy this loss of the LDR6 population. So the induction of the reepithelialization process is also inducing the recruitment of other stem cell populations. Apparently, the skin has way more than just this one population of stem cells. Uh, including the hair follicle stem cells, which, if I remember correctly, we're actually going to be talking about in the next uh, in one of the roundup papers here. We've actually got two papers related to skin and two papers related to to the blood. And so, when these hair follicle stem cells are being recruited, they are compensating to actually help mediate the wound closure. So they are working together with the LGR6 population to ultimately close the wound. And of course, you got to do some single cell if you're talking about uh, wound healing, if you're talking about different populations of the uh, stem cell populations in the skin. And they found that the fate of the LGR6 positive stem cells is shifted towards a differentiation profile after they lose their, their niche. All right. So the big picture here is that this LGR6 population is a population of epidermal stem cells that are needed for the injury response. They interact with other stem cell populations in the skin, and they also interact with the nerves to regulate the ultimate fate of skin renewal and skin regeneration. And I think you know we've talked a lot about this recently on the show especially in the context of the skin, which I think is a fantastic model system for studying this, the importance of the niche, all right? It's not just the stem cell intrinsic properties that are contributing to the regeneration of different organs like the skin, but it's also the contribution of other components in that niche, like the nerves in this particular example. So another neat study looking at skin regeneration, I thought we had figured out all the different stem cell populations in the skin, but hey, LGR6 is a, it's another one. Yes, uh, this, as you alluded to in the end there, um, <clears throat> the niche, it's complex and it's kind of, there's this dichotomy, or I don't know if it's a dichotomy, but there's a kind of a two sides to the coin here in stem cell science where we make these organoids, right? And we talk about how we're approximating, you know, organ function. And then you see the actual niche and the cells in the animal and you realize, or at least it underscores how far we have to go with um organoid culture to really get there but i mean pantelemon he's on his way last month cell stem cell this month cell stem cell he is a uh, alumnus of the greco lab at yale uh, nicef new york stem cell foundation Druckenmiller fellow like myself i am proud to say um so yes uh pantelemon he is on fire and the the name i thought it was like uh spanish i mean this is a stem cell show but i'm going to tell you a little about etymology i don't know why not um, the name actually means merciful. It's a Slavic name. So, you know, be more like your name, Pantelimon. Have mercy on us. Why don't you leave some of the science for the rest? He's doing a fantastic job. Their lab is on fire and back-to-back uh, -back cell stem cell stories. You mentioned the, the organoid angle, right? Um, organoids are, of course, talked about a lot on this show, and one particular class of organoids are the intestinal organoids, which are marked actually by the next-door neighbor of LGR6, LGR5. And this is actually something that came up here on, in this particular paper. They're wondering about the leakiness of some of their reporter lines here. Would the LGR6, LGR5, are they close enough when it comes to uh, uh, the protein um, – 
structure, the overall sequence, are they close enough to actually ha cause some leakiness in the expression of some of these Cree mouse lines that they looked at? So, um, uh, and fortunately, it didn't look like there was that leakiness, but it tells you also a little something about, you know, genes that you might think are so closely related just by the basis of the fact, you know, their sequence is very similar, LGR6 versus LGR5, but they can perform entirely different functions in the body. Another example of that in the context of the work that I do is the GATA family of transcription factors, GATA5, GATA4, GATA6. Um, they are expressed in different places, like GATA6, for example, is expressed in the endoderm and also the pancreas, whereas GATA4 is one of the master regulators of the heart development. So, you know, those one, that one little number, LGR6 versus LGR5, makes a big difference. A world of difference. And you mentioned the tools, you know, the Cree uh, drivers and all the, the stop locks and lineage tracing genetically engineered mice that we use. Um, which are, you know, an issue, it's not an issue, but they have their limitations as you kind of spoke to there. And the investigators here, Pantelimon and his group were very careful in showing the fidelity of these, but you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of tools that have been developed for lineage tracing. I'm staying in the epithelium here. We're going to talk about another, uh, story with epithelial stem cells and lineage tracing and imaging. Um, and this, you know, stems from that idea that these are tools and they don't necessarily tell you the truth. They just uh, give you some indications in that direction. Um, and talking about epithelium and ectodermal lineage and differentiation, most of ectodermal uh, appendages, including the uh, hair follicles that uh, we just talked about, we're going to talk about again, they come from the placode, okay? Um, and a, a lot of previous studies have indicated that this gene SOX9 uh, is expressed in cells that are generated by asymmetric division of epithelial cells in the placode. And that's what leads to becoming these bulge stem cells, okay, the hair follicle stem cells, right? But it's not really certain, you know, it's not clear uh, how an immature placode develops into the mature hair follicle structure, right? And, and one of the problems and the obstacles to really understanding that and seeing it is that you don't really know specific markers that enable this perspective identification of all the cell lineages amongst the, the placode and the derivatives, right? Um, there's a lot of adult stem cell markers for hair follicle stem cells, including like SOX9 and FATC1, LHX2, KR, keratin 15, um, but there's a lot of spatiotemporal variation in the expression of those markers, you know, because these are like ancestral, like in the case of Cree and the stop blocks, if it turns on, it stays on. So it's hard to really tease apart the timing and the progression of these cell lineages. So uh, Hironobu Fujiwara from uh, the Riken in Japan and his group, they uh, endeavored to address this by using a just a brute force, long-term ex vivo culture imaging system of whisker hair follicles from mice. Um, and this was the key here, it was a technical innovation where they were able to image these things starting at embryonic day 13 plus 60 hours. So they had long-term extended imaging of the bulbous, of the hair follicle to the bulbous peg stage, okay? So that's E13 plus, uh, 
about two and a half days. All right. So, and we talked about this in the last episode too, and we've been talking about it. The imaging is really progressing to the stage where we can see things real time and over extended intervals. And combined with other technologies like single cell transcriptomics, we're able to really add new depth to analyses that have already been done. I mean, we've been looking at these systems for a long time, but now we're adding increasing temporal, you know, spatial resolution as well as transcriptomic. And that's what they did here. They combined that long-term imaging with single single cell um, to show the progression of the entire epithelial uh, cohort within the mouse hair follicle during development in real time uh, and showed that, and this was really cool, they showed that the precursors of the different epithelial uh, lineages, they were aligned in kind of a concentric manner um, in the hair plaque code uh, and each ring so had its own identity um, and they uh, acquired a unique transcriptional character and then extended um, into these uh, cylindrical compartments that were aligned. And the bald stem cells were derived from the peripheral ring, um, which is contrary to what everyone thought they knew. They all thought it was from the suprabasal cell. But um, here, Fujiwara and group showed that it was actually from the peripheral ring. They also show that there was these th the 13 gene clusters that drew the entire transcriptional landscape of epithelial lineage diversification, at least in embryonic stages, writ large, all right? So um, then they went really off the wall and took uh, historic work from insects, okay? And uh, they converged on this this uh, generalized telescopic or telescope model they call where it's essentially these three these concentric rings in the placo the telescope out to form these aligned 3d longitudinal longitudinally aligned cylindrical compartments so it's not just like a story about imaging and looking at what happens in the epithelium and the hair follicle and the whiskers here but it's kind of like talking about general you know across you know we're talking about insects so, I mean, you'd have to go to yeast to get much farther, but this is like fundamentally, uh, a fundamental, fundamentally conserved element of animal embryogenesis, it seems, in the ectodermal lineage. So it's a big deal, not just in terms of stem cell organogenesis, but also evolutionary comparative biology. Yeah, I do want to bring it back to the the tech development for, for a second. I mean, you, you talked about it. Imaging has taken this field and every field in biomedical research by storm. I mean, we talked about two photon recently, all these amazing developments in 3D live imaging as that as is described here. And of course, coupled with the single cell really gives you a resolution in development that hasn't been possible before. And I was thinking about it, you know, we've been studying development for a very, very long time. I mean, the initial Xenopus experiments and Xenopus observations were made in the early 1900s, late 1800s even. Um, but now that we have all of these amazing imaging technologies, part of me thinks that we have to revisit almost everything with human, when, not necessarily with human development, but just looking at development in general. I just feel like there's so many things that we've missed when it comes to localization of different stem cell populations, cell migration, cell differentiation, so much. 
so much to look at with all these new technologies, you know? I mean, <laughs> I, I get it. It's, it's, we don't want to reinvent the wheel. And of course, the, the observations that we've made in these seminal studies over the years have, have stuck around for the most part. But I feel like we have to know, take another deeper dive into some of these developmental approaches and developmental processes, don't you think? Absolutely. I think, uh, I don't know if it's a old saying, but it ought to be, uh, you know, all knowledge in science is provisional and uh, needs to be reconsidered pretty regularly. And technology gives you a, a, a great lever there um, to look at questions that we know are important but to, to add higher resolution. So you know, talk about standing on the shoulders of, of giants, you know, we can really revisit old questions um, and shed new light on them. So it's, it's, it's exciting uh, to be in science at this time with all the tech, Arun, isn't it? It is, and you set me up because we're talking about tech in the next story as well. The next story is coming from the lab of a genome editing mastermind this is focused on base editing this is the lab of dr david Liu, over at the broad institute first author here is gregory newby the title of this paper is base editing of hematopoietic stem cells rescues sickle cell disease in mice and i believe uh dr Liu is going to be one of the main speakers and one of the keynote speakers at the iccr annual meeting which of course we'll be attending in in a few days here we're talking about another yet another application of base editing this is a technology that's really been pushed forward by the folks at the broad institute and and dr Liu in particular and i think they have a few um, uh, startup companies that have actually spun off of the work that's being done in the Lube lab. So sickle cell, we're talking about sickle cell here, right? So they're basically app applying their custom adenine base editors that they term ABEs towards different diseases that have point mutations that are caused by point mutations. And in this situation, they're looking at sickle cell, which is a caused by a specific point mutation in the beta globin gene HBB. And they used a base editor or Abe to actually convert the sickle cell disease allele, which is dubbed HBBS, into a, a non-pathogenic variant, HBBG, also known as the, the Macassar beta globin. All right, this is reflecting actually one of the limitations of these base editors. It's not like you can convert every single base, you know, one of the four bases into one of the other four bases. There are some limitations in terms of the, the patterning that you can do and in terms of the, the coding that you can actually change. So in this situation, they weren't actually able to convert the SCD or a sickle cell disease allele into the wild type. They actually had to convert it into a non-pathogenic variant. So just a, just a little something to, to note there. What they did is they actually delivered the mRNA encoding the base editors with a targeting guide RNA into hematopoietic stem cells uh, from patients with sickle cell disease. And they saw an 80% conversion of the allele gene into the non-pathogenic variant. In 16 weeks after actually transplanting these edited human HPSCs uh, into, into the immunodeficient mice, the frequency of this um, disease allele was, of course, very low. Um, the frequency of the edited allele was around 68%. And the important thing was the function. They significantly reduced the hypoxia-induced sickling of the bone marrow reticulocytes um, fivefold. And that's really 
important because that means that this gene editing is seems like it's a permanent fix. They looked at the physiological effects of the base editing, and they saw that there wasn't anything off-target, which is part of the reason why base editing is being adopted these days. It's a much cleaner system than the traditional CRISPR-Cas9, which induces a, a double-stranded break, which I like to dub taking a shotgun to the genome and just kind of blasting it. It's not the cleanest process, okay? So after 16 weeks, this uh, Macassar beta globin, which is the non-pathogenic variant, actually represented around 80% of the beta globin protein in the blood of these these mice, and they, you know, the, the hypoxia was still reduced significantly. Um, they showed very normal, you know, like blood parameters, uh, reduced pathology in the spleen compared to the mice that received the unedited cells. And then they did a secondary transplantation of the bone marrow, uh, confirming again that the gene editing was durable in long-term transplanted hematopoietic stem cells. Um, so all in all, I think this is a tech-centric paper showing the importance of base editing as a really clean editing strategy for specific pathogenic variants. It's not applicable to everything because, as I mentioned, this isn't a... Uh, a way to edit every single base into every single base. It's only specific situations that this is applicable. But when it is applicable, it is a clean fix, no off-target edits. And I think this is um, really taking the genome editing field by storm. This is huge. I mean, a, a lot of the stories, it's been one huge story after the next. We just covered uh, a couple weeks ago, you talked about the Exkid or one of those types of, you know, immune deficient diseases that was addressed by um, genetic engineering. I mean, this is the thing decades ago we talked about. We were waiting for it uh, to come, I think, a little bit sooner. But now it's just everywhere. And I think that that this, you know, we, we're curing people effectively. Uh, we societally are curing people of sickle cell already right now using the technology that has been hailed for decades and now this is like 2.0, 3.0, whatever point oh. So, and and the other point that you make there, while it's not, it's not for every disease, you know, there are specific diseases this is suited to. I think that the way they went about it here uh, really is a testament to the ingenuity of scientists. You know, it's it's it may not be for every disease, but you're not correcting. You know, you're not restoring the native allele here. You're you're going a different way. You're bypassing. It's kind of like there was another hack I remember where you you activate fetal globins to get around, you know, a deficiency in, in the adult globin. Um, so there's these hacks that I think, you know, native isn't necessarily a cure all the time. You can find another way. And I, I mean, this is just so exciting, I think, to see that the therapies are, are finally in people, you know, not this one, but it won't be long and still improving. And, uh, you know, all the, the sequelae that you would worry about, like oncogenesis or, or, you know, cancer, in this case, have been addressed. So it's very exciting. Yeah, you mentioned the ingenuity of the, the folks who are doing this kind of work, really clever approaches to bypassing the pathogenic variant and engineering a non-pathogenic variant. This kind of reminds me of what Eric Olson's lab has been doing uh, in their studies of um, in the studies of Duchenne's Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, where they actually did a an exon skip strategy as opposed to a complete genetic correction 
uh, the gene that actually causes Duchenne's. But um, they basically decided to skip the the causative exons that are causing the disease, sort of in a, in a similar fashion to what they're doing here. Not a perfect fix, but it's it's going to do the job. I think base editing is something that's being readily adopted by different labs around the world. And part of it has to do with um, Dr. Liu's research strategy, which is make these reagents pretty readily and quickly available to anybody who wants them. They're depositing their plasmas onto adgene very quickly um, within, you know, oftentimes even before the paper is published. So I think that's a big reflection on to the openness of science and in particular the openness of this particular lab in, in making science accessible to everybody around the world. Scientists helping scientists, people. That's what they do in the best case. Um, so yeah, we're talking about uh, genetic engineering and therapy and maybe CRISPR, in this case, space editing. Um, and this has been proposed, you know, since the Berlin patient with HIV, uh, this is my segue here into another blood story. Uh, since the Berlin patient, people have been talking about a long-term cure, not just suppression of the virus for HIV, right? Um, by making, and this is the Jean K. Hay thing, which is a disaster, but same idea is by making the immune cells kind of invisible to the HIV. Um, and that's an idea. Uh, but um, just speaking about HIV right now, uh, the, the therapies work, right? The modern antiretroviral uh, anti therapies uh, are enabling people with HIV to live longer, life expectancies that are approaching those of people without HIV, right? Um, so, you know, effectively, you could argue that we've, we've got a cure or we've suppressed it to the point where it's no longer a scourge that it was, um, at least in the developed world. But um, HIV is also uh, associated, and not many people know this, but increased prevalence of uh, other comorbidities such as cardiovascular disease, and malignancies that aren't directly related to the HIV or AIDS. Uh, even with people who have been totally virologically suppressed, um, have been on antiretrovirals for you know years uh, since first diagnosis, they still have increased comorbidities. Um, and part of this may be related to clonal hematopoiesis, okay? So clonal hematopoiesis, it's the overproduction of blood cells from a single hematopoietic stem cell that has a somatic mutation. And that gives that, that hematopoietic stem cell and its derivatives a, a clonal advantage. So you get these, these clones that kind of are more represented in your hematopoietic cohort. Uh, and it increases with age, as you might expect, because you get more mutations. Um, and it's also associated with development of hematologic malignancies, also cardiovascular disease and stroke, and just general. All-cause all mortality, clonal hematopoiesis, is linked. Um, so given the increased uh, incidence of cardiovascular disease and malignancies in HIV, and then also separately, the link between clonal hematopoiesis and malignancy and cardiovascular disease, obviously the connection is, hey, you know, maybe HIV itself via clonal hematopoiesis is leading to these comorbidities. Um, and to address this, it's a big group here, uh, and this paper was led by Kathy Petuminos, Sarah Jane Dawson, Mark N. Polizotto, uh, and Mark Dawson, 
they're from the Kirby Institute and the Peter McCallum Cancer Center in uh, Australia. And they made up this uh, group called the Age-Related Clonal Hematopoiesis in an HIV Evaluation Cohort. Okay, it's called the Archive Study. Um, and they put together this study as a pretty massive um considering the care they took, in which they took 220 HIV positive and 226 HIV negative participants, all aged 55 years or older. They were recruited and prospectively uh, monitored. Peripheral blood was collected to, um, serially collected to assess uh, whether or not they had, pre the, whether there was present any clonal hematopoietic mutations. And what they found was that there was a total of 135 clonal uh, hematopoietic mutations identified in a total of 100 of the 40, 446 participants. So roughly a quarter of all the participants um, had incidents of clonal hematopoiesis. And as you might expect, the clonal hematopoiesis was more prevalent in the HIP po HIV positive uh, participants with an odds ratio of about two. Um, uh, the patients with clonal hematopoiesis were pretty much twice as likely to come from the HIV positive pool. Uh, and also the both hematopoiesis, clonal hematopoiesis and uh, the HIV infection were associated with increase in biomarkers associated with inflammation. So uh, two things there suggest that there's increased emergence of clonal hematopoiesis in HIV infected individuals, and this may be related to a state of chronic inflammation um, related to the HIV infection. So, I mean, as far as stem cell stories go, this is much more clinical, but I think it's a really important milestone um, for the field to definitively uh, attribute the, these comorbidities to uh, HIV itself and possibly the inf inflammation. I think it's a really good lead there, the inflammation at least, as to what the maybe the pathophysiology uh, physiology underlying these uh, effects are, so it, it would be fodder for a, a lot of future study and a nice clinical endpoint that definitively definitively makes this link once and for all. Yeah, I'm just learning about clonal hematopoiesis. I'm not really a blood guy, and unlike you, who is living and breathing blood, right? But when it comes to clonal hematopoiesis, it's hard for me to say it actually. Clonal <laughs> hematopoiesis. When it comes to CH, uh, I, I'm wondering if it's a causative relationship or is it more of an association? I mean, some of these mutations may not necessarily. Um, be directly contributing to the progression and to the prevalence of the disease. So I guess what I'm getting at, and something we discussed before the show, is is this sort of a byproduct, or is this actually, um, you know, really directly implicated in the the causation of the disease? Yeah, I think that you know, given this, I wouldn't say isolated study. There's some other evidence pointing in this direction, but I would say more it's the totality of the evidence um, over the over almost a decade, uh, at least five years, that has suggested that there is in in patients with clonal hematopoiesis uh, a, a really broad constellation of cardiovascular and other um, sequelae, and and in particular that that is perhaps related to a myeloid bias amongst the hematopoietic um, clones. And, and so I wouldn't say in this study specifically, 
but I would say given other more uh, mechanistic and I would say studies with more molecular resolution showing the way that the hematopoietic clonal hematopoiesis can distort the pool, I think that maybe provides more of a of a of a basis or a rationale for for the link. Um, but yes, you know, it's it's the age old question. Anytime you do anything in science, correlation or causation? Um, you know, with the clinical study, it's really hard to say. But that's why we get into the mice next, Arun. We'll see. It won't be long. This archive study, I'm sure, is going to be um, you know the root of of a of a long scientific branch. And with that, the interview. Um, this week, we're talking to Stephen Sullivan. Uh, and, you know, talking to somebody who's geared towards getting IPS cells out to the world in a sensible way, it's a good time to bring a message from stem cell technologies. As research using pluripotent stem cells advances toward the clinic, there's a renewed focus on cell quality. Visit www.stemcell.com slash cell quality to explore ways to assess your human pluripotent stem cells and learn about essential quality attributes to consider for gene editing, disease modeling, and maintenance. Okay, we'll talk to Stephen Sullivan about all those points in the interview coming right up. All right, guys. On this episode, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Stephen Sullivan, who's the Program Manager and International Liaison Officer for the Global Alliance on IPSC Therapies, otherwise known as GATE. GATE is an international resource to facilitate the therapeutic use of immunogenetically matched clinical grade new types of stem cells, induced pluripotent stem cells that we know about a lot. Uh, for the benefit of patients globally, GATE's vision is that patients globally will have equity of access to this new generation of iPSC-derived cell therapy products. Dr. Sullivan, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for being here, Dr. Sullivan. As Dalen mentioned, you're part of GATE, this global alliance for iPSC therapies, and it's no secret that iPSCs have tremendous potential for cell therapy. You can, of course, make a variety of different somatic cell types from iPSC colonies and differentiation protocols have improved tremendously over the last decades, as of course you're aware of. And we've discussed this plenty on the show. I mean, there's tremendous potential for these cells, but there are certain limitations when it comes to cost, applicability, making sure the lines we're using are universally uh, accepted, GMP manufacturing, so on. There's a lot of issues to tackle. So where does GATE actually fit in here? And what specific steps are you taking to actually make sure that this universal and global mission of making iPSC therapies uh, is you know, a realistic reality? So what are you guys focused on? I suppose basically what we are is an organization that is there to facilitate consensus around key elements of, of quality. Uh, so, you know, if you look at um, other types of stem cells, uh, research and translation, sometimes there's not a, a, a pivotal coalescence around what constitutes quality or what constitutes a type of stem cells, stem cell at the beginning of uh, the sector's development. And this then drags into people thinking that they're uh, on the same page using the same definitions, but actually they're not. And this means then 
that they, uh, you know, they, they think they're working in a coordinated fashion, but then when it comes to actually manufacturing new therapeutics, uh, they have huge problems. So Gate has spent uh, a lot of time uh, focused uh, over the last four years on, um, you know, building consensus around critical quality attributes. So, you know, what is uh, a clinical grade iPS cell, i.e. what is uh, an induced pluripotent stem cell that is going to be used as a starting material for therapeutic development? Um, and, you know, we had a series of workshops and then we published the first iteration uh, of those critical quality attributes. And the idea is over time, we will refine those and uh, gradually lift them up uh, so that the, the sector as a whole becomes more and more aligned. So you think about any type of cell uh, therapy, uh, the kind of some of the biggest risks to actually getting that to market are things like financial inviability or adaptation of different technologies at different time periods uh, and, and also regulatory discordance. And these are things that are generally not thought of to any great degree by early uh, translators in the, you know, on the way to the clinic. Uh, and what Gate is seeking to do is build a more holistic vision of what is ultimately required to get uh, you know, new IPS cell therapeutics to the clinic uh, so that, you know, you know, if you build a holistic vision for translation and people know what are the key bottlenecks to getting stuff to, to, to the clinic and helping the patient, we'll all be better off because the more therapeutics reach the marketplace and the more patients that are, uh, you know, assisted uh, and helped, then ultimately the more consistent funding will come into research over time. Mm. You know, so everybody benefits uh, if there is efficient translation to the clinic. Mm. Yeah, Gate, it's funded by a, a global consortium of organizations, right? I mean, that's the whole point is that you're getting everybody yeah. on the same page. That includes the New York Stem Cell Foundation, the Cell and Gene Therapy Catapult, uh, Center for Commercialization of Regenerative Medicine. That's Those are in New York and London, Toronto, Canada. Also Korean HLA-typed IPSC banking initiative in Korea, Seoul. Uh, French Institute of Health and Medical Research in CIRM. That's in Paris, of course. Uh, and then the University of Hong Kong. I mean, there may be others, but that in itself right there, that's, that's, that's the world pinnacle institutions on all the greatest, uh, I would say, academic centers, right? Um, you That's get just it. the board. Yeah. Our membership is, is even broader. It's more like five to 600 uh, members. Wow. Um, so the, the board, I think, is obviously very important because, you know, several, you know, many strategic decisions are taken at board level. Hmm. And when you're talking about, you know, the likes of, of Michael May and Susan Solomon uh, and, and the other uh, directors and chair, there's, there's a very deep, uh, well of knowledge yes. uh, pertaining to the stem cell sector. And one of the key things is, you know, having that memory of how things didn't go efficiently in the past with other types of stem cells or other cell therapies. Hmm. And that's really quite crucial because um, if we make the same mistakes repeatedly, you know, with each cell type or with each new therapeutic, then there's a huge amount of waste and confusion. Hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, it's important that we, we remember how things went wrong in the past so that we make new mistakes going forward, hmm. you know, 
Right. And there's, there's always a lot of um, um, confusion if things like critical quality attributes for uh, IPS cells are not worked out early on before the sector really starts to explode. Hmm. So, you know, I think that, you know, we're waiting on, like, obviously the IPSC sector is growing quite fast already. And that's, you know, because of, you know, immune oncology's, uh, you know, explosion and, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of uh, interest coming from the MSC space. So, you know, Sonata using IPSCs instead of primary material to make their MSCs. So there's a lot of kind of what I call indirect forms of uh, in funding coming into the space. But when we get the results of, of clinical trials, if, you know, inhuman efficacy data is published, then that, that's really going to be when the IPS um, sector really takes off even, even stronger than, than it has already. Yeah, you talk about quality a lot. It's come up a couple times already in this conversation. And of course, a yeah. big part of making iPSC-based cell therapy a reality is this quality control to make sure mm. the cells you're using for therapy meet appropriate you know, criteria and regulations for, say, GMP-grade manufacturing. And one thing you're actually doing right now is collaborating with stem cell technologies to actually publish a study on quality control for iPSCs. So we'll actually call you back on the show down the road once that's published. But uh, uh, why don't you give us a little bit more insight into that particular study, this collaboration? What do you think the most critical criteria are for quality assessment for iPSCs, and what are you learning? Well, if I'm coming, like, think about it. If you're, if I'm sticking cells, if I'm injecting cells into you that are derived from an iPS cell, you want to be very certain that those cells reach particular specifications. So things that, that they're sterile, for example. Or you know that, that those cell, the cells are not genetically unstable and then start you know behaving aberrantly and causing cancers and such. Um, we were initially like four four years ago we had this quality workshop where we asked our membership how they defined and tested for uh, iPS cell quality, and we took the the answers and you know basically we canvassed. Uh, 18 different institutions, and we got 18 completely different answers. So different assays were being used. If they were using antibodies, different antibodies were being used, and even different definitions about what specifications were required to give you a positive result or a negative result when doing a quality test. So this really showed to us that um, you know people thought they were considerably more aligned about what constitutes quality and testing for quality, they thought they were way more aligned than they actually were. So you could you could almost see, you know, if the if the field didn't acknowledge this and try and coalesce, so and test the assumptions around, okay, you know, are our quality tests consistent and indicative? Um, you know, the, the the field would end up having big problems in that I won't be able to, uh, you know, if I take cells from your lab and I'm trying to make a, a therapeutic from it, I will, you know, have a very frustrating time because your tests are not th the same in real terms as uh, as mine. Mm -hmm. And so, what we did was over the last two and a half, three years, we we collaborated with Syra in Japan and uh, um, Nipsey in England and um, Stem Cell Technologies uh, in in Canada, as you say, and we held. Uh, 
an induced pluripotent stem cell quality assessment round. So this this consisted of us shipping blinded standard materials to 18 sites in 11 different countries and asking uh, those 18 uh, participants to test uh, the standards we had given them. They didn't know what they were. Uh, and then to give us back their data and their conclusions. And then we would amalgamate that data together. So individual um, participants in the quality round could see whether their quality data was consistent with what other people had done at, on these other sites or whether it was an outlier. So basically it tells you an awful lot about how consistent and indicative, indicative your quality testing is relative, relative to the other sites. So we had, you know, a, 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 we had a really strong response when we, we had an open call for participation. Um, we, we thought we would have five or six institutions, but we ended up having, uh, you know, 18, which, you know, vary from like uh, the Bioprocessing Technology Institute in ASTAR in Singapore, uh, you know, I suppose large biotechnology companies like uh, Blue Rock Therapeutics, um, cell and gene therapy in the UK, um, obviously Syra in Japan um, and CCRM in Canada. But we also had other centers like the Center for Regenerative Medicine in Barcelona and the Center for uh, Stem Cell Research in the Christian Medical College in Valore in India. Hmm. So there was this really big mix uh, of different types of companies like Faith Therapeutics, all the way down to uh, universities in, that were very focused on clinical translation. So, you know, we had two Brazilian universities who were involved, the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo uh, University. Um, and, and what was really good as well is we also had uh, other leaders in the field like Fujifilm, uh, CDI, um, and as you, you know, in CIRM in France, uh, and other uh, participants in, in Australia, so the Murdoch Children's Research Institute there. So there was a, a very broad mixture of participants uh, that went through this uh, process, and we're really excited to uh, put that data out in the public domain. Obviously, you know, uh, one of the things that was uh, quite difficult was, was steering this quite complex endeavor through COVID. And, uh, you know, some of our uh, participants were frontline, you know, involved in the vaccination programs and dealing with the consequences of COVID. So, for example, the Scottish National Blood Transfusion Service, um, you know, they uh, participated and, you know, managed to uh, stay on board uh, while, you know, all the COVID uh, disruption was taking place. So, you know, we we're very thankful to all the participants, um, uh, including you know companies like Yapkaskesi uh, in in France, um, for you know staying on board and uh, you know allowing you know us to get this over the line because I think uh, you know no one saw COVID coming and then when you're working uh, across you know eleven different countries, hmm. um, you know it really you know it takes trust and it takes patience to get an, a complex endeavor like that over the line, right? you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's not a, a small scale thing. You guys are reaching out uh, to all kinds of institutes, as you alluded to there and specifically named. Uh, I was having a look at the website. It seems like 
some at least of the practical applications in the workshops you have there are geared towards navigating the regulatory and consent aspects of generating IPSCs. Looking at this really drove home for me the challenge of regulating the clinical implementation of an individualized cell product, right? And of course, across yeah. many different cell types for many different indications, it's a challenge, yeah? And do you, the question I think here is that we're talking about uh, coalescing and aligning on standards um, before we get you know, into implementation, so we're not caught behind the eight ball there. But it seems like, to me, this is constantly evolving. Do you think that by the time we arrive with some clinical applications of IPSCs that we will have a pretty solid set of regulations? Or are we always going to have to keep these as provisional, evolving with every new therapeutic application that emerges? Well, you know, obviously the technology keeps evolving, but, you know, you got to remember that sometimes older technologies will get you regulatory approval quicker. And so when you move to kind of commercialization and wanting to have a clinical impact as quickly as possible. Um, sometimes older technologies will do the job better and quicker than some of the newer technologies, you know, whose, um, you know, safety is still being uh, assessed and characterized. So it takes time for new technologies to become familiar to the regulator. And, you know, sometimes newer technologies mightn't be cost effective at the beginning. So, you know, this, there's all these other elements that come into play uh, when developing a therapeutic that, that, that are as important as the quality of the science. If the, those boxes aren't also ticked, then you don't get to the, you know, get, a, you know, a product on, you know, you, you don't get a new therapeutic that actually you can roll out to large numbers of patients. So you alluded to like a, the GATE website, which is G-A-I-T, GATE dot global uh, and membership is is individual membership is free and so there's several workshops there one is developing relationship with registries and and identifying appropriate donor material and that's really important actually because you know if you're taking um donor material and make you know reprogramming it to ips cells and then making your therapeutic the regulator will want to know an awful lot of information not only about how you made your IPS cell, but they'll also want to know about the medical history of the donor, you know, what drugs they were on. You know, if, uh, yeah, there's a large, deep um, well of, 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 uh, of requirements from the regulator when it comes to these kind of cell therapeutics. And one of the things that GATE has is this uh, deep understanding about uh, you know, tra uh, transplantation and transfusion requirements. So, you know, obviously communicable diseases would be uh, a big concern. So you want to make sure that your donor, uh, you know, hadn't, you know, been exposed to, you know, various uh, pathogens, for example, or they didn't have a lifestyle issue that meant that they, you know, their health was impaired, for example. You know, if they were on, on drugs, so you, say, for example, you are taking an IPS cell and making it into a dopaminergic neuron, uh, but the donor material that you initially sourced, the donor had been on a drug that was neurotoxic. The regulator is going to want to say, well, what's the effect of that when you put it into the into the patient? 
is that going to make the therapeutic uh you know more risky than than it needs to be and so you know there's there's a lot of uh things to consider other than you know uh what's immediately apparent there's like one of the sayings at gate is begin with the end in mind you have to think through the whole translational journey and sometimes it's good to have a place where you can meet uh other people from other silos who are as you know equally important in the translational journey to find out what are the traditional bottlenecks in their area so for example you know if you're you know if you're uh, an early stage researcher in academia you know you're you're you know you're you're rewarded for ideation novelty you know your publications um and then when you get more into a scalable manufacturing mindset you're you're thinking about um you know do can you grow the scale can you grow the cells in large number you know what number of cells would you want to uh, elicit a positive clinical effect so you know if if i have to grow up swimming pool swimming pool you know volumes of of stem cells to treat one patient then obviously that's a lot less feasible than if i have to you know have a handful of cells in order to elicit a positive clinical effect so you know all these things come together and then there's other elements that like you know clinicians would would be talking about usability when i develop a therapy can a general nurse uh, administer it to a patient or do i need a really highly qualified uh you know specialist because if if that you know if i need a really you know highly skilled uh, specialist to administer the therapeutic then actually the clinical impact will be much less because it's much harder to to roll out in large numbers so understanding elements that really affect the clinical impact of of the therapeutic down the line are, you know are good to know even if you're you know uh early stage uh, of translation you know yeah i mean there's a lot of moving parts as you've alluded to and i think one of the the toughest part of this all of this you know what gate is doing is the fact that you have to deal with multiple institutions and multiple regulatory bodies across the world and spanning various jurisdictions around the world each country has its own regulations when it comes to ipsc and cell therapy approval that sort of thing so it can't be an easy task achieving a consensus across international boundaries given the huge range of laws and regulations governing cell therapy and i was thinking about the genome editing field because i feel like this is an interesting parallel right they have mm -hmm. to go through a lot of these same hurdles and same regulations to actually uh, even think about making uh, genome editing based therapies a reality so i'm curious to see what are the steps you've taken to actually make sort this kind of like worldwide consensus on ipsc quality a reality it must be really tough you know working with so many different institutions across the world with all these different regulations well i think if you have people who've experienced trying to make cell therapeutics before before ips cells um they will know how things can go awry and how ultimately your you know your your therapeutic development journey is almost destined to failure unless you coalesce with what others are doing and you know if if for nothing else if if you're coalesced with what your colleagues are doing it'll keep costs down for one 
and that becomes hugely important when you move more into the you know engineering or the scalable manufacture uh, of therapeutics so I, I think you know veterans in the field know how you know not coalescing around standards and definitions it just leads to confusion it leads to waste and also it makes life harder for everybody because whether you're a researcher or a translator you know society is looking to you to be part of you know the the you know the uh, the chain if you will that's going to get these therapeutics out the other end so it's important to to work in a coordinated fashion um it is a challenge but ultimately what it comes down to is having a platform where everybody's welcome and you, you can talk things out so it's not like gate comes along and dic dictates all right these are the quality you know the critical quality attributes everybody adopt those no they're like open meetings and people are encouraged to come and discuss and you know the the discussion then leads to uh usually quite a broad uh definition um but even just having a broad definition of of requirements is very very valuable then because you know everybody's on the same page already and you can refine that then over time i think one of the one of the key things, if you wait, or, like obviously it's very important to engage the regulator about, you know, if you're going to develop a therapeutic, you have to engage the, the regulator. But the regulator is there to stop the patient being exposed to unnecessary risk. Their role isn't to align the field or keep costs down or make developing new therapeutics easier. You know, it, it's it's up to the community itself to align itself um, and to learn from. The past if you will um so you know apart from the registries and the regulators you know there's there's a lot of workshops uh that are also on the gate website that are free you know if you join as a member all you need to do is give us an email address so we can see who's accessing the site and um then you can basically look at uh, those workshops and you know even from the point of view like we one of one of the projects we're working on um, with um, uh, Ebisc and Andreas Kurtz uh, is about you know developing better searchable databases to find IPS cells for specific applications, for example. So whether it be research grade or or clinical grade, um, and that's that that's also really important because people need to find the IPS cells that are fit for their purpose. Yeah, I can see. Uh... It really is the bottom line there is that you guys are, are creating a space for everyone to come together, coalesce on an agreed and high set of standards. But at the same time, the the commitment, you know, you're balancing all the these different cultural centers, right, as well as scientific academic centers and the commitment to therapeutic application of IPSCs is uh different in different places i mean i know it's a it's a matter of national identity in japan where ipscs you know hailed from with the yamanaka and they set up a lot of funding apparatus and institutes to mm -hmm. to to accelerate i think the translation does you find that the the regional political or cultural influences can you know lead to i wouldn't say a, an unequal contribution of any one group but do you find that the voices in the room 
maybe have different priorities and you have to balance the enthusiasm of some with the conservatism of others and find a medium? Or do you just like lead? You just say, this is the standard scientifically and you guys got to get on board. Well, I think there's a, there's a degree of you're enabling that consensus and part of enabling that consensus is being aware of cultural difference. So you can't be, you know, uh, ethnocentric. Like if you try and do everything the Canadian way or the Irish way or the American way or whatever it might be, then you'll be exclu excluding a lot of other different cultures. And, you know, a classic example, say you mentioned uh, the Japanese uh, culture, which is, you know, I suppose to be uh, quite distinct from the Canadian culture, for example, in that when you have a formal meeting, um, the, the Japanese will tend to make the big decisions after the formal meeting to save face, because that's, you know, uh, you know, honor and having respect is very important in the Japanese culture. And if you don't pay heed to the cultural elements, then, you know, it's like, um, you know, it, it's, then you won't get the full uh, engagement of the international community. If you see what I mean, so you you kind of have to be aware of what the you know like sometimes you might have a lot, a lot of extroverts in the room who'll do a lot of talking, but actually the real gold might come from the introverts if you allow them to give you feedback then later on. So you you need to have a system that accommodates everybody and how they prefer to interact and how to uh, ask for things. I mean, obviously patience. And listening to others is the rate limiting step. Um, but I think if you, you know, start off well and, you know, when you build a network, it's it's about having one-to-one -one relationships and, you know, establishing trust that, you know, we're all on the same page. We all want IPSLs to, you know, have the, uh, the biggest uh, clinical impact possible. Like, I mean, uh, that, you know, we're not just getting you know, no one's interested in to getting to square 99 on the snakes and ladders board and then falling all the way back down again. We want to get to the end and, and get a therapeutic out the other side that is, you know, safe, safe and efficacious. And, you know, this is obviously uh, ambitious, but, uh, you know, I think we've just seen, you know, vaccines being produced to, to, to COVID-19 and, also, I think the COVID-19 narrative really shows us how interconnected we all are. So, you know, I think it's uh, in some ways it's one of the silver linings from a from a very testing time that, you know, if we collaborate, we can achieve a lot more. And I think ultimately, when you're thinking about any cell therapeutic, you know, you'd probably be leveraging uh, different materials and different infrastructures at different parts of the world. So, you know, differences in individual countries can be leveraged to overall benefit of efficient translation. So you might find one country where the regulatory requirements are very systematic and very clear. So you might go to that country for, you know, regulatory approval and making sure that your, uh, you know, your donor material or your IPS cells or your intermediate materials are fit for purpose. But then you might find that it's easier to carry out clinical trials in another country that has an integrated uh, healthcare system, which means that it's it's easier to enroll patients, for example. So you know that differences don't just divide us; they actually m make us better at certain things, and uh, that can be leveraged. But it all it all comes down to not just 
focusing on the technology, but also focusing on what can be achieved through collaboration. Yeah, definitely. And it's part of the reason that working in this IPSC field is so fun is because it is an international field. And even myself as an academic, I've had the opportunities to travel around the world to listen to amazing speakers from different portions of the world doing incredible science. And like you said, you know, we're all on the same page. Ultimately, we do all want to see this become a reality. You know, IPSC cell therapies become a reality. And you've traveled that scope of science. You know, you've started in the academic side of things, and now you're more on the business side of things. And we're actually always really interested in non-traditional career paths here on the Stem Cell Podcast. Most of our, you know, most of our guests are on the academic side of things, but I think we have a really unique guest here today. So we wanted to showcase what you've done throughout your career. You actually received your PhD in regenerative medicine at the University of Edinburgh, focused on nuclear reprogramming and in the pre-IPSC days, actually. And then about a decade later, you decided to actually get your MBA and make this shift to GATE. So did you see this translational potential of IPSCs coming from a mile away and you decided to actually get more involved in the business side of things because you saw that coming? So what was it that actually brought you to your current role and how did you, you know, how did you make that transition from academia to, to gate today? Okay. So that's, that's three, three points would be, you know, why did I get into pluripotent stem cells? And the, the, basically, um, I was in Dublin, uh, the year that Dolly was cloned, which showed that you could take a mammalian cell and make it revert back to a pluripotent state. Um, and also Jamie Thompson derived human embryonic stem cells. And those two discoveries side by side, you could say, wow, that w- that's going to be amazing because, you know, one of the, the key bottlenecks to, you know, developing uh, new therapeutics is getting access to enough material to either study the disease or, you know, screen for new drugs or develop cells that can have uh, a positive therapeutic effect. So I went to Edinburgh and, and worked uh, in one of the uh, labs associated with cloning of Dolly. And that, that was fascinating, you know, um, and just, you know, even before Shinya Yamanaka had found IPS cells, just nuclear reprogramming is fascinating, just that you can wipe uh, the epigenome and, and, and a cell reverts back to a pluripotent cell. Uh, is, is, you know, it's, it's natural. It happens naturally, of course, in primordial germ cells. Um, and I spent a bit of time in, in Cambridge uh, with a really good scientist, Azim Sarani, um, to learn how reprogramming happens naturally uh, before going to the States then. So that, that was my academic nuclear reprogramming kind of part of, of, of my career. I tend to gravitate towards where I think I'll do the most good or the, the, where I'll have the, you know, the, the most uh, value, you know, overall. So, you know, I, when I was in Boston, uh, I read this book and it, it, the book was how uh, economics shapes science, because I think as every academic out there will feel, you know, it's, it's a rate limiting step to get the money and you could do a lot more research if you had the money. Um, so I read this book and it really spoke to me that like, you know, in order to understand how to get science over the line, you, you kind of have to have the basics of economics, 
in your head. So, you know, I went away and did an MBA and learned a lot of stuff relating to, you know, managing technology and, uh, you know, international collaborations and things of that nature. So after that MBA, then Gate uh, came as, as an opportunity. Uh, and, you know, it had a really stellar, uh, you know, board of, you know, that I, that I can engage with and learn from. Um, and, you know, uh, and it was it was a really ambitious mission, but it was a really important mission because you could see how, you know, if the same mistakes were made over and over again, uh, ultimately, you know, um, things wouldn't be getting over the line and society wouldn't keep supporting a really important area of research. So, you know, society doesn't know necessarily how much academics suffer for their, you know, for their profession. All they're interested in is, okay, I'll give you so much money. Now you'll give me, uh, you know, a, th a therapeutic or a drug at the end of the day, you know? So um, we're all linked together uh, in, an, in, a, in a series of silos and each silo has, you know, its own value set. Uh, so like in academia, ideation and publications. Then when you move into the manufacturing, it's all about, what are the sources of variability and how do you how do you get something out the end of a process run that is to you know a consistent standard a consistent specification uh, so you know in in each of these silos there's there's very different fo foci you know there's very different ways of assessing success um, and and sometimes that leads to cultural friction between the silos as well so it's you know I think sometimes when you have like, um, you know, uh, an early stage researcher is talking to a regulator or, you know, a manufacturer, they look at the regulator and say, ah, you're, you're a nitpicker, you're worrying about all stuff that doesn't really, really matter. But the regulator know, has a very broad uh, area of expertise about where things can go wrong when, you know, making new medicines. And actually, that's really important if you want to make a new medicine. Or, you know, if you're talking to uh, you know, a manufacturer and they're talking about, well, we need to upscale this and, you know, the number of cells we grow ultimately determines how many patients we can treat. Uh, so like everything is interconnected. And I think it, I felt that for me being a jack of all trades and being part of an organization like Gate, which is building a more holistic vision of translation is is actually really important because if we stay in our own individual silos these are just you know these are artifactual silos and they're you know if we stay in a silo sometimes we can be in an echo chamber mm. and there can be assumptions that aren't being tested in our echo chamber uh, but we we accept as true because we read them over and over again so you know i i think one of the things that i've come across in gate you know, I've engaged with a lot of clinical immunologists, for example, and, you know, the immune system is a lot harder to control than one would be led to believe if you just stuck to the uh, stem cell literature. You know, there's like clinicians and researchers who are still characterizing aspects of the immune response. And, you know, there's so much compensation in the immune response. Uh, it's not It's not as straightforward as you know, just ablating a few genes and Bob's your uncle. Because even if you do render a cell invisible to the immune system, then when you put it into the patient, 
the immune system is normally there to, you know, oncovigilance. So it's there to remove the cells that are behaving aberrantly and could be a, a real risk. So if you remove the capacity of the cell to be sensed by the immune system uh, and that cell starts to go awry, there are aspects of that too. So really, you know, there's a lot of areas of expertise required to make uh, cell therapeutics uh, and we need to leverage them all in, in order to get things over the line. And, you know, it, it's important that, you know, we mightn't be specialists in all these areas, but it's good to just have a, an awareness of the bottlenecks. And that's where the I think the gate website is is quite useful. And as I say, you know, anyone here listening to this can become a gate member just by going to gaitgate.globalglobal and uh, signing up with your email. Yeah, guys, check out the website. Uh, you will learn something, even if you don't want to become a member. I don't know why you wouldn't, but uh, check it out. Um, and really, it, it hits home what you say because, you know, there's a lot of scientific journal articles that are published and the reason why they're published is you know they have some clinical ramifications oftentimes it could be the big cure right but how many of those things actually really make it to market i would say one percent maybe that's optimistic because the reality is it's not just the, the ideation and the hard work right but it takes a whole you know group of, of people outside of the science and you're talking about the regulatory bodies there at all um, to really bring it to practice. So it's really nice to have that perspective on uh, the show. And I think all the scientists listening, all the people listening will appreciate um, what it's going to take and all the hard work uh, that you guys are doing to bring this about. Just on the side here, we have one peripheral question here to ask because, you know, it seems like uh, you, you have, you've got a, a, a bird's eye view right? You've seen many aspects of the work. Um, and I think also you have a, a one perspective on, of the interface that maybe the scientists on the inside don't have, which is the outside view of the science. What's the biggest misconception about science and scientists that, that you would like to resolve if you had the chance? I think one of the, you, you can be a specialist in your area, like in your silo, but going outside and extrapolating the knowledge you have into other areas doesn't always work. So, you know, I think, um, I think it's, it's really important to know your area of expertise and try and stay within that. And if you don't know, say so, you know, I think, um, I, I think especially in today's world with social media, I think it's, it's, it's very hard, like an expert, is only an expert in a finite thing. And, you know, like if I, if I start lecturing on, I don't know, like a French philosophy, <laughs> you know, obviously it, it won't be m very valuable because I don't know much. Um, but I think that can be kind of a little bit more nuanced in cell therapeutics. I think one of the biggest things I've learned in GATE is some of the downstream requirements for making a therapeutic and they're not insignificant and it's it's important to have a working awareness of them because you can literally spend decades uh refining a, uh, making a product only to realize that it doesn't tick all the boxes and you have to start all over again hmm. so you know i think it's important to try and engage in 
you know, these organizations that span several different silos. You know, I think, um, you know, various organizations like the, the International Stem Cell Banking Initiative, you know, the International Society for Cell and Gene Therapy, for example, ourselves. Like, GATE is, is like a frigate. It's a small, uh, you know, adaptable kind of organization. We're not an aircraft carrier that ISSCR or ISCTR. But what we can do is kind of at least highlight some of the key challenges that are ahead uh, and then allow the, um, you know, the larger organizations to come in behind and really uh, put more effort and uh, more pressure in that area. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I think uh, one of the good things about being a, a relatively small organization is that our overheads are low and members can uh, engage on an individual basis and, and see kind of the workshop material we've produced. Hmm. And this, you know, this can help whether you're writing a grant and trying to show that you've thought about the downstream consequences of your work, or, uh, you know, uh, if, you know, like that you are thinking across silos and that, that you know, investors and, and funding agencies are becoming more sophisticated in, you know, asking uh, applicants to be aware of other requirements that are downstream than, you know, the uh, early uh, research per se. All right, guys, step outside your silos, see the big picture. It's not just about making the experiment work, right? It's about getting it into people. That's what I think every scientist dreams of one day having their work have a benefit to humankind, whatever that benefit is. And it takes stepping outside of your limited worldview and asking for help sometimes. Thanks for that message, Dr. Sullivan. This has been a really uh, illuminating and fun chat, uh, and we'll have to get you back on the show when you're done with that survey. You can tell us about those 18 respondents and whether or not there was concordance there or not. I have a feeling that we're going to be maybe a little disappointed with the concordance, but maybe some light ahead. All right, partner? Excellent. Thank you. Take care, man. Okay, take care. All right, people, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Dr. Sullivan and his group there at the gate trying to get us all on the same page so we can move forward with these IPS cell therapies. Won't be long now. The future is very bright. Tune in in a couple weeks. We'll have another episode talking about the latest developments. Thanks for listening.